I'm really excited about what we're talking about. We're diving into the book of Philippians and we have titled this study, Anxious for Nothing, because Paul's attitude is such that if we are really rooted in who Jesus is, then we can hit that place of anxious for nothing. Is that hard to even imagine for anybody else other than just me? Um, because to me, and maybe everything has been so rosy for you, uh, to me, I've been anxious about everything, everything, every little thing. I feel like my every last nerve ending is just firing in all kinds of different directions. And I've heard a whole lot of people say that 2020 was their hardest year. Uh, I think 2021 has given 2020 a little bit of a run for its money. But our 2020 actually started in 2019 when we went through in the space of like four months, so much life change and upheaval. Um, we went through a really difficult season at work. Uh, so I had all of this change happen very quickly that, that was just really difficult for me to kind of wrap my mind around. And then um, shortly after that, my grandmother, who at the time was 101 years old, um, she started to, to decline really fast. And so we knew that was the end. And when someone hits the age of 101, I, you know, you, you've just been living um, kind of on high alert for a little while, but you get so used to it being not the emergency that you thought it was that I think I had sort of gotten to this place of thinking that she really would just never die. That she would be like Enoch who walked with the Lord and then he was no more back from the book of Genesis that the Lord would just kind of take her when he came back for the rest of us. So it, it, it has surprised me how much her passing affected me. I had a, a very close relationship with my grandmother. This was my mother's mother my whole life. And uh, numerous times over the years I had flown out to visit her in Florida just to spend time with her. Just had always had a really strong relationship with her. And so when we realized that this was probably it, uh, I flew to Fort Lauderdale and spent a week there with her while she was in hospice and got to spend the night, um, two nights in a row in the, in the hospice room with her. And I will, I will cherish that time for the rest of my life. On the night before I left, we had the most marvelous time. They have, uh, I've heard it said, and I've read this also, there's actually a lot of literature on what end of life is like. And there are, are, are certain common phases. One of those phases, very, very close to the end, is you, you often see them get this burst of energy and they start talking to people that you can't see. And that, that happened. And so she was having these conversations with people in the room and I got to be a part of that. And it was so precious. And my grandmother too, she was always her best audience. She was like her own best audience. And by that, I mean, every story she told, she cracked herself up. I mean, she just, she would tell a story and then she would throw her head back and she would just laugh, 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 laugh. And the story was as dull as like, I don't even know. The story was so unremarkable remarkable, you wouldn't even remember it. But then she would start laughing and it was so ridiculous that pretty soon you're laughing. So we kept feeding the cycle. You know, she thought she was hilarious. We thought it was hilarious that she thought she was hilarious. And so that final night, she had conversations with people I couldn't see. And then, um, and then 
I got all of her last words. She woke up the next morning and she never really fully, fully woke up after that. But I, um, we managed to, I, I think we did some highly unethical things to pipe the Yankees game in. So I got to watch the Yankees game with her, her last Yankees game. And I got all of her last stories. And she, for probably two hours. And I'm just exhausted because it's my second night in a row in the hospice unit. And that's just never comfortable. And she's telling me one story after another from her upbringing, from her mother-in-law, from her father, things she had never told. I mean, I learned some things that I was like, I don't know if I should know this. But here's what was happening. She had known me. I mean, she was there when I was born. So she had known me my whole life. Life And now at the end of her 101 years, my grandmother wanted to make sure that I knew her. One of the things I love so much about the Bible is that it is God's desire for us to know him because God knows us, right? I mean, scripture tells us that he has actually numbered every single hair on our head. And it also tells us that he knit us together while we were in our mother's womb. And so that means God knows exactly how many cells we consist of. He knows how many eyelashes we have. He remembers the moment when our toenails and fingernails just started to grow. And when those little teeth buds just started to become teeth and he was there when this little clump of cells in the center of this mass that was something that was going to be us started to beat. He was there for every single piece of that. And he leaves us the scriptures because God wants us to know him. I think it's in Jeremiah Jeremiah 33 where God says, I want them to know me. And the word he uses for know is this Hebrew word, it's yada. And elsewhere in the scriptures, it's, I don't even know if I should say this, it's used for intercourse because, not because God's a perv, but because that's the most intimate way. I mean, he's not. Sex was his idea. I tell my kids that all the time. Uh, Not all the time, just when it comes up. But, but, That is the most intimate way we can know someone because it's actually an exchange. And that's, that's the relationship God desires to have with us. And so that's why we're here tonight. That's why we study the Bible. It's not self-help. It's not to get better at X, Y, and Z. And, and honestly, it's really not even to get peace of mind. It's not so that we would become less anxious. It's, it's so that we would know God who is the source of our peace and the source of our strength and the source of our wellness. All of us tend to walk around with this little undercurrent of not quite rightness, and that's because we're broken. But God who created us knows exactly what we need to be whole, and it's to know him, and it's to be in a relationship with him. That is the number one and only reason we read the Bible, is to know the God who knows us so thoroughly, but isn't satisfied with that. He wants us to know him, and we are going to get to know him through this study. I am so excited to study the book of Philippians. I've, I've just been soaking in this book now for, it's, it's got to be at least a year, reading it over and over again. I um, 
had this in one of my classes at Dallas Seminary. We translated the whole thing from Greek and worked our way through the grammar. So I've just been in this book and it never ceases to minister to me and I never fail to see something I didn't see the last time. And so we're gonna have so much fun. Before we talk about Philippians, what I would like to do briefly is just talk about the Bible. We've got people in here from all levels. So if you're just starting this study, is for you. If you're a scholar, this study is for you too. But what I want to do is make sure we are all building from the same foundation. And so we're just going to spend a minute and talk about what the Bible is. So the Bible is a book. Duh, thank you. I paid money for that. The Bible is a book, but it's also a library. It's a collection of books. The Bible is actually 66 books by 40-ish authors. It was written on three different continents. It was written in three different languages. The Old Testament is primarily Greek, but there's some Aramaic smattered in there. The New Testament, which is what we will be working out of, is was written in Greek. It was written over the span of 1600 hundred years. And yet when you read the Bible, you're going to find this golden thread of continuity that ties it all together so that you can see that while there were 40, approximately 40-ish humans writing the words of scripture, there was one God who was inspiring the words of scripture. Um, One of the things that I think it's important that we know about the Bible before we dive in is that those 66 different books, they are not all the same kinds of book. They're not all the same kinds of literature. So we read all different kinds of literature. Magazine, that's literature. Um, Blog posts, that's another kind of literature. Song lyrics, that's literature. And the Bible's made up of all different kinds too. And one of the reasons it's important for us to know that is because we approach different kinds of literature differently. So you read... um, you read a historical book differently than you read a song lyric. If you hear this song on the radio and you love it, so you look up the lyrics. They're both communicating truth. They're just communicating truth differently. And one of the reasons we need to know that is because we will bump into verses like this, Psalm 91.4. Am I supposed to be running my slides or are y'all doing that? Oh, look at that. Thank you so much. Um, Psalm 91.4 says this, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Now this verse is talking about God, but none of us actually believe that God is like a bigger version of Big Bird, right? We just kind of intuitively know that's not the case. Why? Because this is poetry and poetry draws on metaphor and it draws on allegory. And so we just intuitively know that we are gleaning truth from this, we're discovering that God is a protective God. And that's a truth that's communicated to us through the use of metaphor. So not everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. It's all to be taken seriously, but not everything is to be taken literally. So each one of the 66 books of the Bible has a theme, but every single book in the Bible fits under the main theme of scripture, which is the theme of redemption. So I'm just gonna give you the story of the Bible in the world's smallest nutshell, okay? You start in Genesis 1-1 and it says, God created the world and everything in it. On the, on the sixth day of creation, God created man and woman. And he did that for a reason. And that reason is really important for this Bible study. God created the man and the woman, and it wasn't because he was bored, all right? It wasn't because he was lonely. 
It wasn't because he and the devil are kind of locked in this cosmic game of chess and they needed pawns. That's not why God created the man and the woman. God created people because he lived in such perfect harmony with his son and with his spirit. We serve a triune God, three persons, one God. He lived in such beautiful fellowship and community that that love just overflowed and splashed out on everything around it. And God needed more to make objects of his love. And so he created you so that he could love you, be in a relationship with you and bless you. That's why you exist. That's why you exist. You were created so that God could adore you. You were created so that God could lavish that love on you and pour into you and strengthen you and give you a purpose to walk out. That's why you exist. And I think that's so cool. But then um, Adam and Eve did what any one of us would have done had we been back there in the garden and they broke the one rule that God gave them. God gave them everything he created except for one thing. And they took the one thing that God told them not to. And what that happened, um, when that happened, that broke fellowship, that broke the relationship between God and his people. And so then God put a plan into place. And this is what the rest of the Bible is about. God put a plan into place to raise up a deliverer, rescue his people from bondage and reconcile them to himself. God's plan is to fix the brokenness. We broke it God fixes it. And that's the story of the Bible. Now we see this play out differently in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the focus is on Israel, all right? And God is going to raise up a deliverer to rescue his people from bondage, reconcile them to himself. Initially, that deliverer was supposed to be the nation of Israel. And so maybe you didn't know that. It was like later in my Christian walk that I actually learned that. But the reason God chose a people group and set them aside and made them holy and called them holy wasn't so that they could brag about it, which is what they did. It wasn't so they could like holy huddle up and keep all of this good godness to themselves, which is what they did. It was so that they would go out and spread God's glory over the face of the earth, which they did not do which they did not do. So they failed in their mission. And the Old Testament is the story. It's the story of the the creation of the world, okay? Um, God's people wrecking everything. And then God focused his attention on Israel. And then the rest of the Old Testament is about the birth, the rise, the spread, the fall, and the partial redemption, the partial uh, reconciling of the nation of Israel but we need a better deliverer. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the deliverer that God raised up so that he would rescue his people from bondage. And for us, it's just to rescue us from our brokenness. It's to rescue us from our, our constant tendency to just kind of just mess everything up around us. Maybe that's just me, but I'm so good at messing things up. And so Jesus came God with skin on to reconcile us back to God, to make a way for us to have that relationship back with God, not just while we're here, but forever in eternity. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about Philippians. 
But before we do that, we have to talk about two quick things. And I love the way we're studying the Bible. We are studying an entire book, okay? Now, I told you the Bible's made of 66 books. When we're gonna study a book, and that is typically how I, I will always teach, you have to learn a few things about the book before you just dive in, or it's not going to make any, any sense. And we, we, we know this because we all know that if we come into a movie, you know, three quarters of the way in, it's, we'll get some of it, but we're, we're not gonna understand it. We're not gonna have the same buy-in. You know, we're not as invested in the characters. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Philippians' role in the Bible, and we're going to talk about that by doing two things. We're going to set the biblical context, and then we're going to set the historical context. So the biblical context, context asks this question, where does the book that I am studying fit into the big story of the Bible? The historical context asks, what was going on in the world when this book was written that played into what the author wrote? So we're gonna start with the biblical context. And I wanna ask a question. Has anyone here ever been to the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota? Oh my gosh, are y'all from Minnesota? No? Is anyone from Minnesota? You are, you are. Okay, I'm gonna be very careful about what I say because I lived there for nine years and not all of them were pleasant. <laughs> however, however, the Mall of America, I mean, it is something, isn't it? It's like, you gotta be like curious or crazy to go there. It's just especially around Christmas. Okay, so the Mall of America, do we have a picture? We have a picture somewhere. It is the largest mall in the United States and it's the second largest mall in North America. Uh, the first biggest is in Canada. It covers 5.6 million square feet and it boasts 550 stores. Essentially, it's made up of four giant malls on the corners, okay? And then you have some hallways and then in the middle connecting them, and I think I have a picture of this too, you have a giant amusement park inside. It's five stories, like the middle part's five stories, and it's like store, 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 so here's all the amusement park, and then it's like clubs on the top. Um, that's a different story for a different time. Okay, so uh, you could fit nine Yankees stadiums inside the mall and still have room for the seventh inning stretch. I found all this online, it's so true. And as if that weren't impressive enough, it has its own zip code. It is 55425. Now, Let's say you want to go to the Gap. Is the Gap still around? Yeah? Okay, we're going to go with the Gap. Um, let's say you want to go to the Gap, and because you're just nuts, you decide to go to the Gap inside the Mall of America. All right, first of all, good luck parking. Second of all, the second you get to the mall, you're going to have to do something very quickly. You are going to have to find one of those giant mall maps. You know what I'm talking about? And you're going to have to look for the place that says you are here. Why do you need to find that? Because if we're going to go to the Gap, we need to know more than just where is the gap? We've got to know where, where the gap is, but we have to know where we are in relation to the gap. So the biblical context tells us where Philippians is in relation to the rest of the Bible. So really quick, grab your workbook, turn to page 13. And I want you to just take a look at the kingdom calendar that is not very well produced because I'm not a graphic artist and I made this using Microsoft icons. <laughs> Look at me, I'm like my grandma, I cracked myself up, that's so bad. 
Oh, it's just bad. Okay. So when we think of the Bible in terms of events, like if we were just going to make, you know, if we were going to talk about the big major events of the Bible, you'll see that we go from creation to the fall. That's when Adam and Eve messed everything up. And then we move to the time of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are the founders of the faith. Um, Then we move on to the Exodus. And most of us know that because that's when Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And then what we have is is called the time of the conquest. This is when Israel moved into the promised land, fought the majority of their enemies, and then took it over. After the time of the conquest, we move into the time of the judges, and that's where the Israel uh, the Israelites lived in 12 tribes. Each uh, tribe was ruled by a judge. Then you see the period of the monarchy. This is the kingdom of Israel, okay? And then you see that there is a split and there's a civil war. And so the house of Israel divides, the kingdom of Israel divides. You have Israel to the north, you have Judah to the bottom, uh, to the south. And in 586 BC, Israel is exiled to Babylon, all right? So essentially what happens is they have been disobedient, 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 disobedient. God finally has enough, allows the Babylonians to come in, overthrow them, And then they take all of the Israelites or the majority of them off to Babylon. But then in 444 BC, uh, there is a king, Cyrus, he allows them to return. And then we have 400 years where really nothing, um, I can't say nothing happens. That is an untrue statement, but nothing, um, no, there are no prophets. No one is speaking the official word of God. And then that brings us to the New Testament. Okay. And then you see, we have the birth of Jesus. We're speeding through this. We get to the crucifixion where Jesus is executed on the cross. And then we see the spread of the church. Okay. And then Jesus's return is the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So we have to ask, where does Philippians go? Where are we in the this big story. So if Genesis is here and Revelation is here, we put Philippians in the New Testament in what's called the church expansion age. That's where we are right now. We are still in the church expansion age. So let's look at Philippians. And what I want to do is because every book in the New Testament actually starts with Jesus, that's where we're going to start. So no one really agrees on when Jesus was actually born, but but you know, we, we believe it was probably four to six BC. Um, I'm going to go with four. That's what I think it was. And so we're going to go with four for this study. So if Jesus was born in four BC and he died around age 33, that puts the crucifixion in year 29, 29 AD. So the gospels start around 4 BC with Jesus's birth. They end at 29 AD with Jesus appearing to his disciples after he's been raised from the dead. And then what happens is this, the book of Acts picks up right where the gospels leave off. In fact, Jesus is actually in, he makes an appearance in Acts chapter one. And so after Jesus goes back up to heaven, he sends his spirit to the, there are now apostles, to his, his people, to the apostles. And what he does is he empowers them and he equips them to share the good news about him. And the good news is the gospel, that God has finally raised up a deliverer to rescue us from our brokenness, from our bondage, and to make a way for us to have that relationship with the God who so deeply desires you to know him.
And then the gospel starts to spread. And the reason we have to talk about the book of Acts is because when you read the New Testament about almost three, a little over a third of it was written by a guy named Paul. And the sec, most of the book of Acts is about Paul. So while he is writing all of his letters, that's taking place during the book of Acts. Does that make sense? Okay, all right, I'm just gonna trust. I'm just gonna trust. Okay, so if you go to page 17 in your workbook, I'm gonna start giving you some answers. Page 17, the very first question we have is who wrote the letter to the Philippians? The answer to that is the apostle Paul. And like I just said, we meet him for the first time in the book of Acts. And I want to introduce you to him properly because the way he is when, he is, when we first meet him in the book of Acts, I believe is 100% responsible for the way he is by the time we get to Philippians. All right, so when we meet Paul in the book of Acts, the gospel has started to spread, but, but not as quickly as, um, as, as I think Jesus would have liked because right before he went back up to heaven, he told his apostles, his disciples, three things. And, and he was, go, tell everyone about me, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to go to the ends of the earth. And they had, for the most part, just kind of camped out in Jerusalem. So the, their, their little band of brothers and sisters is growing. And there's this guy named Stephen who is mad passionate about Jesus. He loves Jesus and he is telling everybody he meets about Jesus. And the religious leaders who are Jewish do not like it and they try to stop him. And so what they do is they bring him on trial. It's an unfair trial. And ultimately at the end of Stephen's testimony, they agree, they, they all rush him and they stone Stephen. And what it says in the book of Acts is that Saul, he goes by Saul uh, for part of the book of Acts, and I'll tell you why in a second. He's, he's approving of this. It says Saul's, Saul was holding their cloaks and approving of the stoning. And that word approving is interesting. It means that he had some authority over the matter. Like, like he was nodding, and yes, that's, exa that's exactly the way I wanted you to do it. He's very evil in this portion. Okay, why does Saul, Paul, go by two names? So I have three names, actually. My name is Rebecca, first name, Ashbrook, maiden name, Carol, which is my last name, my married name. Nothing has changed. Paul had uh, two or three names. Saul was probably given to him by his Jewish mother. And so when he was in Jerusalem, it makes perfect sense that he would go by Saul. Paul is a, uh, a Greek name and he, it's Paulas. And he, it makes sense to me that when he went out on his missionary journeys, when he went away from Jerusalem, he would have used a name that was more recognizable to his Greek and Roman audiences. So Saul slash Paul is a religious Jewish leader. We know that much. He wants to stop the spread of Christianity and he gets permission from the highest council to go to a city called Damascus. And, and the sense is that he's going there. Um, it says he's going to drag them off to prison, men, women, and children. But the sense is that it, this is going to be probably um, very violent and probably um, probably involving executions. And I wanna read this to you. This is really important. Acts 9, three through nine. As he, Paul, Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they saw nothing. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Okay, why is this so important? Because this event right here, something happened to Paul. And he hints at it here and there. But he doesn't ever tell us the full story. But I'm telling you, you start to study his letters. Jesus had so captivated him that there was nothing he wouldn't do. There was no place he wouldn't go. There was no people group he wouldn't reach. He became single-minded, single-missioned, and so he had to have seen something very, very profound. You get a lot of different facets of Paul in the New Testament, okay? You read Romans chapter one, and you've got some angry Paul. You've got Paul who is so fed up with the pagan culture around him. He's not gonna waste a minute of your time. He's gonna call out what's bad, and he's gonna tell you how to get to the good. You read the book of Galatians, where he's, um, where he's writing to these people who have kind of been re-seduced by Judaism, he comes right out of the chute, both guns blazing, and he's like, you fools, what are you even thinking? You get to Corinthians, where he's got to chastise some people for doing some very shady stuff. You get angry, Paul. But Philippians, oh my gosh, none of that. None of that. Paul doesn't call them out for anything. He addresses one issue they have, but he doesn't call anybody out for big issues like he does in some of the other books. He adores these people. He loves them and he's got something he wants to share with them about Jesus. And I think that Paul is who he is in Philippians because of who he was in Acts. He was a murderer of Christians, and I want you to, to notice what Jesus said in, um, in that first slide we had on Acts 9. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Yeah, he was. According to Jesus, if you go after mine, you go after me. You hurt mine, you hurt me. And I think some of us need to know that, some of us who have been traumatized by others. I think someone tonight needs to know that Jesus takes that very personally, very personally. And he didn't turn a blind eye and he is not going to let that person get away without justice. So while Saul is in Damascus, Jesus appears in a vision to a man named Ananias. And Ananias, just a nice guy, Christian doing his thing. Um, and he's heard rumors about this guy, this terrifying guy named Saul. And Jesus tells Ananias that he's gonna go lay hands on Saul and pray for him. And Ananias is like, no, I'm not. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. 
No, got the wrong guy. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I ain't doing it, I ain't doing it. And then Jesus says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. All right. I'm also sharing this story about Saul slash Paul because, uh, and this is a new slide, um, over the course of three missionary journeys, Saul went on to share the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And I think I showed, yep, I showed just how great that distance is. You have Jerusalem in the bottom right corner and that is Philippi up in the top left. And then you have Rome, uh, exact top left right up there, Philippians or Philippi's in the middle. And then that's Rome all the way up at the top corner. So he, he got around, he got around. Um, he went on to write uh, about a third of the New Testament, including the book of Philippians. So let's talk about the historical context. I've given you the biblical context. The historical context of Philippians is really fascinating. Um, so Paul planted a church in the city of Philippi on his second missionary journey. In Acts 16, Paul and his companions had planned to travel north to Asia, but the Holy Spirit who appeared to him in a vision stopped him. And this is what we read in Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi. This is really important, a Roman colony and the leading city in that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. I want you to notice what he didn't find. He didn't find a synagogue, okay? He didn't find a synagogue. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Then the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to come to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. So Paul and his travel companions stayed at Lydia's house. Okay, this is in the city of Philippi. Why do we need to know this? We need to know this because Lydia's house was the first church in Philippi and the church in Philippi was the first church in Europe. And I just enjoy knowing that the very first church in all of Europe was at the house of a woman which tells us she probably had a leadership role in it. Now, Paul planted this church around AD 49. So this is about 20 years after Jesus has died. And he most likely wrote this letter to Lydia and the rest of the people who were still gathering in her house about 10 years later. So this little book that we're reading, this four chapter book is actually a letter that went to Lydia's house. So that's the biblical, we've got the biblical context. And now we're talking, about the historical context. So if you studied world history in high school, you remember Alexander the Great, one of the greatest conquerors of all time. Well, the city of Philippi was named after his father. His father, um, this was in 356 BC, Philip 
of Macedon. Philip of Macedon was a king over a region called Macedonia that you hear about quite a bit in the New Testament. And the Romans came and conquered Macedonia and they overthrew the Macedonian dynasty in 168 BC. So now we're 200-ish years later. Fast forward 120 years. In 42 BC, we've got a guy named Octavian. He will go on to become uh, Caesar Augustus. He decided to honor the city of Philippi. How did he do that? He went there, he made a big production and he made them a Roman colony. And what that means was that everyone who lived in Philippi was exempt from Roman taxes. That's a huge perk because the Romans were notorious for their taxes. Um, And they got all kinds of benefits. And here's how they populated that city. When um, one of the ways that slaves could earn their freedom was by serving in the Roman army. And you could, after a certain amount of uh, service, you could have your freedom. And Octavian would set these people up with a certain amount of land, a certain amount of money, and give them citizenship. And so you can imagine that the people in Philippi really, really loved Octavian. He was actually a brilliant strategist. Um, Philippi was essentially Rome away from Rome. So even though it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, the people there spoke like the Romans, they dressed like the Romans, they ate like the Romans, and they worshiped like the Romans. So historians tell us that Philippi was, uh, that the people who lived in the city of Philippi, that they were actually a cult of the emperor. And so instead of worshiping all these deities, all these gods, they worshiped the emperor as though he were a god. And they actually believed that upon his death, he would go on to become a god. Now, by the time Paul got to Philippi, there were two titles that were the most common for the emperor. And the Greek words are curios and soter. Curios means Lord, soter means savior. And so all public events were always given in honor of the emperor. So at the games, at whatever else they had, at the theater, they would, before they started, they had opening ceremonies and everyone would rise in honor of the curios and soter Nero, Lord and savior Nero. Why do you need to know that? Because you're going to notice how often Paul uses the word Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's making a deliberate point to this group of people who worship Nero as Curios and Soter that no, no, you have one Lord, you have one Savior. It's not Nero. In fact, Nero was so crazy. I can't wait till we get to that lesson. It is Jesus Christ. All right. Paul, uh, why, and I think this is one of the questions on your um, study guide. Um, Am I in the right place? Let me see. Okay, we're going to skip ahead. Actually, hang on. I think I've missed a page. Okay. Okay. So, um, why did Paul write? Paul wrote to address internal opposition and external opposition. What was the external opposition? So if everybody in Philippi is worshiping the emperor as Lord and savior, and you refuse to participate in that, that's gonna affect you on every level. That's gonna affect who invites you over for dinner because when they bow and pray to uh, Lord and savior Nero, you're not gonna do that. So this affected them economically. It affected them 
them socially. And so they faced a lot of opposition when it came to um, trying to live out a Christian life in the heart of cult worship, of emperor worship. And the other reason Paul wrote this letter was to address internal opposition. And in fact, I think that this is Paul's bigger concern. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the world is always going to find us to be kind of peculiar, right? Because we, we just follow a different ethic. We, we approach things differently. We have ideas about marriage and we have ideas about sexuality and we have ideas about whether or not white lies are okay and, and, what, you know, and how we should behave. We have ideas about that and they're not the same as the ideas of the world. So I don't think Paul was too terribly concerned. I mean, it's a, it's a concern. I don't think that was his big biggest concern was the external opposition. And if you think about it, if someone's going to take out a company, are they going to pelt them from the outside or are they going to send in spies and try and break them down from the inside? That's probably what I would do is if I wanted to take down an organization, I would get a job there. And then I would just very slowly, very slowly start to cause, you know, gossip and, and rivalry. And, and I'd, I'd get them from the inside and let that spread out. And so Paul's primary concern in this letter is patching up the internal struggles that they have. Okay, um, one of the things that we are going to be doing in this study is looking for themes. Question four in your study guide asks you to list the themes of this letter. I'm gonna go ahead and give them to you so that you recognize them when you see them. One of the biggest themes is joy and rejoicing. You do not get very far in Paul's letter to the Philippians before his joy just hits you in the face. And it's mentioned more in this little four chapter book than any other book in the Bible. We're also going to be looking for themes of unity, unity with each other and unity in Christ. Friendship is a major theme of this book. I've already referenced that you're really not gonna find any traces of angry Paul or grumpy Paul or cranky Paul. I mean, this is just all love and joy. And he wants the believers in Philippi to know Jesus because Paul's vision of Christ is so rich and so all-consuming that he gave up a life of wealth and prestige and possessions and respect and authority. He had the Fortune 500 gig and he gave all of that up to become a missionary. And his faith in Christ is so deep and his belief in the resurrection is so strong that he can say crazy statements like to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul wants his readers to have this same vision of Christ. And that is my deepest desire. That is my deepest desire for us through this six week study. Because when we believe that the gospel is true, and when we trust that no matter what we do, we cannot blow it with God. And when we can trust him, not just for now, but for eternity, we can agree with Paul when he says, we can be anxious for nothing. We can be anxious for nothing because if what he says about Jesus is really true, and I'm going to argue passionately that it is, then we don't have to fear a thing. 
So with that said, I've got three more minutes. We're going to talk about how this Bible study works. So this might be the first Bible study you've ever done. And if that's the case, I am so excited. Um, you can, you, you really are going to get out what you put in. So if you take a look at that homework and it just intimidates you and, and you're just already overwhelmed, just come. You're going to get something from all of the lectures. You really are. Um, the way I have set this up is as an inductive Bible study. What does that mean? It means I don't tell you the answers. Uh, Lifeway, um, the publishing house, and other publishing houses as well have uh, made statements like this, and I, I really took offense to it, that if you want women to come to Bible study, you can't give them more than 10 minutes of homework and three questions. And I just thought, excuse me, <laughs> no. I, I'm setting the bar a little bit higher because I think more of you than that. Like, I don't think I have to dangle shiny trinkets in front of you and entertain you with tales, I think a little more highly of you than that. And so I'm just going to call us to a little bit of a higher standard than that. And then I'm going to write left way and I'm going to tell them you are wrong because I've got 80 women who are in this and they are doing this. And so this is the way it works. The very first... Um, the, at, at the start of every week, you're going to read through the book of Philippians once. It takes about 15 minutes. And uh, every day, the very first thing you have is a section called Prepare Your Heart. I recommend you do it. You don't have to. Here's why I want you to do it. Because as I'm reflecting on Paul's vision of Christ and how it drives the passion that's in every word, I want you to have that same vision of Christ. And so before we start the head work, I want us to just take five minutes. It should take you five minutes and do a little bit of heart work so you can get a glimpse every single day of who this God is that is calling you and desires so deeply to be in a relationship with you. So that's the prepare your heart section, five minutes. Then uh, the very first day of the week, you're not going to have much homework. You're just going to read all four chapters, and then you're just going to write down some things about it. It's called Observe the Text, and you're going to write down, I suggested 20 things. You can do less, you can do more, but you're just going to write down things that you see. And I start you off every week, like Paul greets the people. And so observations are really easy. You're just writing down what's happening. The minutia, like Paul said this, this word is a verb, a verb calls for action. Those are observations. Um, and then the next day you're going to read and then you're going to go through a process called understand the text. And this is, this is where you're just going to come up with the answers on your own. You're not always gonna get the answers and that's fine. We'll discuss them in small group and then we'll discuss them in the lecture. And then the last segment of uh, the majority of the days is called live the text. And that's where we just ask, okay, what does this mean for us? Um, one question I want you to refrain from asking yourself is this. What does this mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to us because it means what it means. It means what the author wanted it to mean. So we're instead going to ask, what does this mean for me? In other words, how should I live now that I know this? And then at the end of every week for my hardcore students who just want to go deeper, I've written a word study for you so you can just get a grip on the Greek and just a, a little bit of a deeper understanding. Again, this from front to back every day, it should take you around 30 minutes. And, and here's what I want to challenge you with before we dismiss. 
I got up at four this morning. I went and I did a fundraiser on the radio for four and a half hours. I left five minutes early so I could make it uh, across downtown over to the campus of Dallas Theological Seminary where I'm assisting in producing and executing an Arts Week conference. After that, I ran a Q&A luncheon for our guests. Then I raced home. I had class for an hour and 15 minutes. Then I raced to pick up my son. Then I raced back, took one breath, and then I changed and got ready and came here. And I know that your life is just as crazy, okay? I am so tired. I gotta get up at four o'clock in the morning and I gotta do it all again. There are always going to be a hundred reasons not to do the homework and not to come. But you have invested your money in the workbook and you're investing your time. And so how much we stick with this study, I think is going to be decided tonight. There are always a million reasons not to do it. But I will promise you this, if you will hang with me for these six weeks, and if you will make your best attempt to do the lessons, you are gonna know Christ. You're gonna know him. And when you know him, you're gonna love him. And I want that for you so bad. I want that for you so badly. I want you at the end of six weeks to know that book back and forth and to have that robust vision of Jesus that says to live is Christ. But you know what? If I gotta die, gain, gain. It's possible. It's probable if you will hang with me. I disagree vehemently with Lifeway setting that bar so low for us. That just offends me. I think much more highly of you than that. So I'm gonna say a quick prayer and then Jessica's gonna get up and I'm gonna get out of your hair. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. We love you so much, Lord. And we just want more of you. It's why we're here. We just want this vision of you that Paul had. And so God, I'm gonna ask you to give it to us. And I'm gonna ask you to drill down to those deepest places in our hearts, Lord God. And I'm gonna ask you to treat us tenderly. Some of us are here tonight and we've had terrible experiences with church, but that's not you, Lord. That's not you. And so give us a fresh glimpse of you and your heart for us. We are yours, Lord God, and you know every hair on our head. You know how many times our heart is going to beat. You know how many breaths we're going to take. And you have a calling for each one of us. And we want to walk in it, Lord. We want the thrill of walking out the purpose that you have given to us, Lord God. Lord God, I don't want us to settle for anything less than all that you have for us. And so please, Lord God, pour your spirit out on us. Speak to us and guide us. Carve out the space for us, Lord, to drill down into this work and to know you better. Reward us for it, Lord. I know that our efforts to know you are never in vain. And so God bless my sisters. I love each one of them so much, even the ones I don't know, Lord God. Bless them. Give them a crazy love for you so that they may truly, truly at the end of six weeks understand that they can be anxious for nothing. We need you, God. We love you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.